Bible reading today is uh, from Habakkuk uh, 1 and to 2 verse 1. Um, if you've got one of the Black Church Bibles, it's on page 1461, and it's also on the screen. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are, are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. All they come... All they... They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities by building earthen ramps as they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Thank you so much, Jono. Uh, let's, let's close our eyes and pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> uh, the world doesn't always do what we want it to do. And we don't know your rhyme or reason often. And so we pray, teach us what faith means as we wait and live in hope. Amen. Habakkuk complained to God. God, why don't you do something? He complained not because he was ungodly, but because he was godly. Like God, Habakkuk also valued justice and righteousness, and he despaired at the injustice he saw all around him. And we can understand his complaining. When faced with injustice, every one of us has our limits as to how much we'll tolerate before enough's enough. Most of us can pinpoint a moment in our life when enough was enough. 
you've been bearing with injustice for a length of time, but finally you've reached your limit, and maybe against your character, you speak out. Maybe that time came for you this week. Habakkuk reached his limit, and he can't not speak out. And so he complains, not to the governor or his local member, because they're part of the problem. Habakkuk was a prophet of Judah around 610 BC. Israel, the northern ten tribes of ancient Israel to the north, had been wiped out by the Assyrians four generations earlier because of their persistent idolatry and their rejection of the Lord. The border of the Assyrian Empire, the superpower, was now only 12 miles from Jerusalem. And for more than 100 years, had been sitting, they'd been sitting there like this great, dark, looming threat over Judah. Now, you'd have thought that Judah in that position and her kings would have learned the lesson that God served on Israel to the north in the past, but they didn't. King Manasseh had so plunged Judah into sin that it was more abhorrent than any other time before. And so entrenched was the evil that permeated society that not even the godly reforms of King Josiah could reverse the fall. And now a new king, Jehoiakim, was once again sending the nation spiraling down into a moral abyss. And so Habakkuk, godly Habakkuk, complains to God about the injustice he was seeing, not about what other nations were doing against his own people, but the injustice that was happening within his own nation, the people of Judah. He's been praying, but God's done nothing, and he can't bear it any longer. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you don't save? His limit's been reached. It's been passed. He can't help but cry out. Why do you make me look at injustice? You know, Lord, why don't you do something? Why do you tolerate wrong? Don't you care? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife. Conflict abounds. The law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous. Justice is perverted. Now, every day we're confronted with issues of injustice on our screens, in our communities, and perhaps in our own lives. And maybe you're outraged. Maybe you have injustice fatigue. Maybe you just don't care. Habakkuk cares because he, knew, he knows that God cares. And because he knows that God cares, he expects, therefore, God to do something. How could God not do something? Sometimes we see injustice and think, surely enough is enough, God. Why don't you just do something? Three weeks ago, I attended a talk where I heard how Islamic extremists broke into the home of Archbishop Ben Kawashi from Jos in Nigeria, how they beat him, they blindfolded him, and then took him to his bedroom and stood around him with guns to his head. A godly, loving, gracious Christian man. Last week, and in an article, have I got it here? No, it might be on the seat. Oh, here we go, Barnabas Hay. In this magazine, uh, I read how uh, there was a moment when 76 Christians were kidnapped in northern Nigeria by the Boko Haram, uh, an Islamic group. All of them were tortured. The four male leaders were taken and told, unless you renounce Christ and convert to Islam, you'll be shot. The four refused, and in front of their wives and children were shot. And then the, their wives were told, unless you convert, your children will be shot. 
Lord, how can you look at this violence and injustice and not intervene? Well, now comes the Lord's answer. Now, the Lord doesn't always answer complaints. He didn't with Job, but he did with Habakkuk. But his answer wasn't what Habakkuk expected. It was shocking. Verse 5, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed because I'm going to do something in your days that you wouldn't believe even if, if, if uh, you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless, that impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. This is like saying, God saying, I'm going to raise up Al-Qaeda as my agent of judgment against the unjust Western nations of the world. Their hordes are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings. They scoff at rulers. They laugh at fortified cities by building earthen ramps. They capture them. And then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. Habakkuk complains. The Lord says, well, I'm going to do something and I do care but it's not the answer that Habakkuk was expecting. And guess what? It happened. Within 12 short years, the Babylonians did invade Judah from the north. 11 years after that, they breached the walls of Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple and exiled her people. Now we're told in 2 Kings chapter 24 that this happened in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and for all that he'd done, including the shedding of innocent blood because he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord therefore was not willing to forgive. So, in answer to Habakkuk's complaint to God, the Lord says he's going to send the Babylonians as an agent of justice against his own people. To which Habakkuk then says, and let me paraphrase, say what? Verse 12, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we're not going to die. We're your people. We're your children. Surely it's impossible that you're going to wipe us out, isn't it? And then you're going to use the Babylonians? You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment? You, my rock, have ordained them? To punish? I mean, it doesn't compute. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? So here's his second complaint. Surely you're too pure to use the evil Babylonians as your agent of judgment against us. I mean, I know we're bad, but they're worse. They're merciless. And they haven't got a lot of time for you. I mean, they're, they're idolaters. They, they sacrifice incense to their dragnets, you know, the, the tools of the trade. And so chapter 2, verse 1, he says, so I'm going to stand at my watch, station myself on the ramparts, and I will look to what he'll say to me and what answer I am, I'm given to this complaint. Most of us scratch our heads and wonder what purpose God could possibly have in the upheaval of nations, one people, one nation against another. You know, we were appalled at the Christchurch massacre. 
But the presence of those Muslims in Christchurch can be traced to another upheaval, the massive exodus of refugees to Europe and Australia and New Zealand. An exodus which, of course, happened because of another disaster, the rise of the so-called Islamic State, which, of course, happened because of another thing, the leadership vacuum created by the Arab Spring uprisings, which, of course, happened as a flow-on from the US invasion of Iraq, which, of course, happened because of the weapons of mass destruction scare under George Bush, which itself was prompted by September the 11th attacks on the Twin Towers and so on and so on and so on we can go. One disaster leading to another. What is God doing in all of that? What is God doing now with the increased nationalism you know, that we see across the world, pitting one nation against... What about US and China, you know, with all their blustering and, you know, the US sending their ships into Iran? Goodness great, where's all that leading? Because which of these nations is really blameless enough to be God's righteous arm of judgment over another nation? <laughs> you know, that's Habakkuk's question. And so we stand with Habakkuk at the end of the chapter two and we wait for the Lord's answer. And he gives it. In verses two and three, the Lord says, not just to Habakkuk, but to us. He says, know this for sure. There will be an end to all of this. The end will come. It hasn't come yet. The appointed time hasn't yet been reached. But I've determined that day. And what you need to do is to wait. That's the message for Christians in prison in Iran, wait. It's the message for Christians in Pakistan being held under blasphemy charges, wait. For Christians in Burkina Faso and Yemen and Syria and for, in fact, well, not just Christians, but all the victims of injustice who fear never seeing justice in their own lifetimes, God says there will be an end to it. The end will come. You have to wait. Well, of course, it takes great faith, doesn't it, to wait? <laughs> and that's the lesson of God telling us to wait. You see, a natural response is to fight back or to do the opposite, to sink in despair and fatalism. But verse 4 of chapter 2, the righteous, God says, will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. This is a key verse in the Bible. It is a description. The righteous man or woman in the Bible has always been that person who walks through life, who, who lives actively trusting in God. Paul quotes this verse in Galatians 3.11 to say that it's, it's faith in God, active faith in God, more than sort of fulfilling works of the law, which, which is the defining mark of the true child of God. It's a description. But then, of course, it's also taken to be a promise the righteous will live. They will live by faith. So again, in Romans 1.17, Paul quotes this verse in reference to the sure promise of life to all who believe, even though at the moment we and all the world are experiencing a measure of God's judgment in all the violent upheaval of the nations. We actually will live if we have faith. true in Habakkuk's lifetime, true in Paul's lifetime, true in our lifetimes. 
It's such a contrast to the one who doesn't have faith, the king of Babylon being judged by God in chapter 2 verse 4 is puffed up, his desires are not right, but the righteous will live by faith. Yet the king of Babylon, his wine betrays him, he's arrogant, he's never at rest because he's as greedy as the grave and just as death isn't sat, ever satisfied, he gathers all to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. His appetite to grow and to conquer is insatiable. Does God see this? Yes, he sees it. He may be using world powers as his agent of judgment, but he's also assessing their motives and their actions. And so the next part of God's answer to Habakkuk's second complaint is to announce ahead of time that judgment will come in turn upon the king of Babylon. And this judgment is announced in five woes. First one, verse six of chapter two. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. He says, the day will come when your debtors, your victims will arise and make you their victim. It's because you've plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will plunder you. Because you've shed human blood, you've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them, so you'll get it. Second woe, verse 9. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain. You've plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your own life. He said, your own walls will cry out against you. Third woe, verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed, who establishes a town by injustice. You know, what's God's answer to that? that he has determined that what will last in the end will not be a city built by bloodshed or by pe people's labour, but verse 14 of chapter 2, the day will come, in his hope, when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So, do you see what's saying? The, the lesson God is giving us is to first have an active faith, but then out of that faith, then to have an active hope. You think, how much does the waters cover the sea? Well, entirely, don't they? I mean, completely. So the day will come when every part of the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, that much. What's the knowledge of the glory of God? Jesus came revealing God's glory. The knowledge of the glory of God is surely the knowledge of Jesus, whom God has determined to be the righteous king over all. The day will come when everyone will know that. When? That moment is described in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, when the seventh trumpet is sounded. Then there were loud voices in heaven and the, which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and, and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And then the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you've begun to reign. And the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, for destroying those who destroy the earth, like the king of Babylon." like other tyrants we know. For those who live by faith and have hope, the day of judgment will be a day of relief. But for others, 
Well, the woes continue in verse 15, fourth woe. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskins till they're drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. Drunkenness, voyeurism. You'll be filled with shame because of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you and disgrace is going to cover your glory. The violence you've done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your, destruct, your destruction of animals will terrify you because they matter to me as well. You've shed human blood. You've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So this is a woe against human depravity of drunkenness and voyeurism and violence. It's all going to be overturned, says God. Final woe is against idolatry, verse 19. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to a lifeless stone, wake up. You know, don't we live in a world, in a nation, with a lot of idols in people's houses? We say, no, 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 we're in the West, we don't have idols. Oh, come on, we're in Oldgate. Stone statues of Buddha in the garden. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver, there's no breath in it. And then comes the climax. The last word from the Lord is his answer. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Well, there's 10 seconds of silence. Reminds me of the silence in heaven for half an hour in Revelation chapter 8. It's the silence of awe, the silence of being in the presence of God and knowing it, the silence of him opening the seventh seal and discovering his plans for judgment that will happen, but out of which will emerge those who wait in faith and in hope. They're described in Revelation 7 around the throne of God in heaven. They, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb and therefore they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every single tear from their eyes. And then when the angel opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. The silence of awe, the silence of reverence, the silence of of wonder, the silence of humility, the silence of worship. Habakkuk began with a complaint, why don't you do something? I will do something, I'll raise up the Babylonians. Surely you're too pure to use an ungodly nation as your agent of judgment. The end will come the great overturning of every power, every person who destroys others unjustly. And what I call for you to do in the meantime is, is to have faith. And that's exactly what Habakkuk models for us in his final response. 
Habakkuk had thought God wasn't doing anything, now he knows God will do something. And so in chapter three, he shows us therefore what faith looks like. In fact, he has been showing us what faith's been looking like right through. (laughs) That's why he complains in a godly way. He relates to God about what's happening around him and calls for God to act. But now he knows what God's going to do and he responds in faith. Now, this isn't meant to be just Habakkuk's response. Chapter three is a prayer. It's personal to Habakkuk. But if you look at the last verse, it's also a song, which means that it wasn't just Habakkuk alone who said these words. In fact, it was set to music so that generations of believers after Habakkuk could also make his words their own. And in the process of singing out these words, what happens is it gets in and he's teaching us how to respond in faith. So what does active faith look like while we wait? Well, first of all, it's prayer. And it's a great model prayer verse too. Lord, I've heard of your fame because I've read my Bible. I stand in awe of your deeds. But then, notice what he says. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. I mean, haven't you ever read the Bible and thought God seemed, seemed very active back then? Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if he was that active today? Haven't you thought that? Well, Habakkuk thought it, and then he asked God to do it, do it in his own lifetime. You know, he knows that the, God's promised the end for the Babylonians eventually, but who knows if that's after he's, he's dead. He says, do it, do it in my time. Do it in our time. What a great prayer. And then in verses 3 to 15, there's all these images and pictures as Habakkuk recounts God's awesome past deeds of deliverance. One picture after another. Is he talking about one event? No, no, because it's like a kaleidoscope of images which keep circling and he's just sort of talking about painting the images that come into and out of his head, um, one on top of the other. He's recounting God's act of deliverance and he's revering God. And then come these magnificent verses in chapters, uh, verses 16 to 19. Please look, Habakkuk 3, look, um, where he models what faith looks like. He says, I heard, my heart pounded, my legs quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones, my legs, tr- my legs trembled because he knows the Babylonians are coming, right? He says, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come upon the nation invading us. Now, that is faith, isn't it? Well, listen to the difference it makes to him. Verse 17, he says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, it's not just that I haven't got food, but I haven't got any guarantee of future food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, I've got nothing in reserve I can sell. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Now, I want to ask each of you whether you could say that. Could you say that? Honestly, could you say that? It sounds impossible, doesn't it? Well, the way it's expressed, it it, it does sound impossible because when he says, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer, he's not talking about a deer in Australia. 
The word in Hebrew is ayalah. It's a specific animal. It's a Nubian ibex. There are about 3,000 of them left in the world. There's a picture. Have a look at the next one. They are so nimble that if you look up YouTube, they've got footage of them climbing hundreds of feet up dam walls that are almost vertical. They do it to get the salt that's leached out through the rocks. They need it for their nervous systems and for the strength of their bones. And so they make that perilous ascent. It's impossible, isn't it? No, they do it. They do it. And so Habakkuk's saying, you make me do what seems impossible, and here's what seems impossible, that when he knows there are very dark days ahead, he says, yet I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. Can you do it? Think, well, I can't do it. But you can. Because Habakkuk does, and it's not anything particularly special about Habakkuk. Listen to his words. The sovereign Lord is my strength. It's he who makes my feet like the feet of a Nubian ibex. He enables me to tread on the heights. He is the one who gives me faith. He is the one who gives me hope. He in whom there is awe. Habakkuk, you see, what does he know? He knows deeply that despite what is happening, despite the revealed future, despite his dark days that he's living in, he knows deeply that God is his saviour. He says, I will be joyful in God, my saviour. Now, this can be the boast of every single person here who knows Jesus Christ, the judge of all time who died for them so that they can escape the judgment, so that the day of judgment will not be a day of terror, but a day of relief. But more than that, we can now pray that he would be for us in our time what he, we know he will be for us on the day of judgment. This is meant to be faith-raising, right? I began with the true story of Archbishop Ben Kawashi who was surrounded by gunmen in his bedroom with a gun at his head. What did he do? He asked permission to pray. Yes. After some time praying to Jesus as his saviour, he heard a voice. It was the voice of his son who said, Dad, you can open your eyes because the gunman had gone. I heard that story from his own lips when he spoke at Trinity City three weeks ago. I shared the story of the 76 kidnapped Christians in Nigeria of course, four were shot. And if the mothers didn't convert to Islam, their children would be shot. Um, this is a very careful magazine in a verified account of what happened next. Here's what happened. That whilst the mothers were agonizing over what was put to them, their children came running into the room telling them that Jesus had just appeared to them and that all would be well. And then, apparently, he appeared to all 72. And he told them not to fear. Why? Because he would protect them. He told them, do not renounce me, but be strong, because I am the way and the truth and the life. And so the next day, when Boko Haram 
lined the children up against the wall and asked the mothers whether they would renounce Christ and convert to Islam. All the women said no. And then as the soldiers readied their weapons, pointing them at the children, can you imagine, all of the soldiers began to claw at their faces and shouting, snakes, snakes! And then they all ran from the compound and some of them fell down dead. One of the Christian men reached for the gun of a dead militant. But the youngest in the group, a little girl who was four years old, put her hand on his arm and said, you don't need to do that. Can't you see the men in white fighting for us? Faith whilst waiting. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread onto the heights. Put your faith in God.